0: Uh, let's get going in the Word. I don't. I like to honor your time. I hate to waste it, and I love to talk about Jesus. So you put those two things together, we get we get busy in the Word. I, I'll meet you in a moment in the Book of Hebrews. If you want to turn into the New Testament, I'm going to title this tonight "Structures in the Wilderness." I don't always give you a title because sometimes I don't have any idea what I'm titling, what we're talking about until I you know, put it online or whatever. But today I I do want to title this Structures in the Wilderness for the thought um, has been on my mind that um, there are no such things as structures in the wilderness, at least not permanent structures. If you look at the journey of the children of Israel, they always had temporary structures in the wilderness, no permanent structures. Everything they'd put up, they could tear down. Whether it was a tent or a tabernacle, whether it was the Ark of the Covenant on poles, God didn't build it with foundations. He didn't put it to where it would stay in the same spot. He put it to where it was always mobile. When you read the books of the Torah and you start to break down the ingredients, that's the wrong word, but we'll use it, of the tabernacle and all of that it looked like, everything that was in it everything that was out of it, it always had a mobile aspect to it. God always told them how to tear it down, how to fold it up, how to carry it. That had to be a little discouraging. I never thought about this until recently. Had to be a little discouraged to, Mo- to Moses when God began to tell him about the tabernacle because Moses caught on quickly. Everything moves. We don't ever get to sit down. Everything had a handle on it. You don't put handles on things you don't carry. Everything had a handle. Everything had a way to be packed up. Everything had a way to be folded. It had to cross Moses' mind, why, if, why, are we all, why, why is he giving me portable stuff? Everything he's telling me to build is portable. That means I don't get to stay in any one spot. That means I'm always on the move. That means that whatever God's doing, he hasn't done. And that means that can be good because that means that whatever's happening, God hasn't done. You go, well, this isn't the end because we got to move this baby. (laughs) But it could also be a little discouraging in that um, we're constantly on the roll. There's not a place to call our own. And so... There are no permanent structures. We don't see a temple until we get past the wilderness journey. And I want to use that tonight. I want to use that thought. I want to use that idea. But I want to frame it around something that's quite common to the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And that's the idea of the city. Because the city, according to the Bible, is a place with foundations. The city is a place where you bring in multiple cultures, multiple... Uh, tongues, you bring in different lifestyles, and you put them all in one place, and cities don't get up and move. Cities have a sense of permanence. To me, there's a fascinating narrative thread in the Bible. If you take the book of Genesis, and then you take the book of Revelation, you've got your natural bookends. Everything in the, the corpus of the Scriptures fits inside of those two bookends. But it's interesting to me that when this thing starts in Genesis, what it springs out of is a garden. God puts a garden, and then rivers pop up out of that garden, and they flow, and they feed the earth from this garden. We don't know how big the garden is. In fact, the Bible almost specifically never tells you. It's like it's not trying to identify this geographic location. It's trying to identify this spiritual condition, fertility, life out of this springs forth everything the earth needs. A garden. And then when you get to the end of the Bible, okay, here's our garden at the front, you get all the way to the end, God says to John the Revelator, do you want to see what it looks like at the end? You want to see the lamb's bride? You want to see how this thing culminates? Husband and wife at the beginning in a garden. God goes, you want to see the husband and wife at the end? I'll show you the lamb's bride, the new husband and the new wife. And it says, and a city came out of God down from heaven and rested. And it was called the New Jerusalem and it was the Lamb's Bride. And so Revelation takes what Genesis did, a husband and a wife in a garden, and jumps 66 books and God knows how much time, and puts a husband and a wife in a city who has the qualities of a garden. Because in the city, a river goes out and trees line both sides of the river. And everyone that comes into the city gets to eat the leaves and have healing in their spirit. And so the Bible's doing this on purpose. It's opening you in a garden and it's ending you in a city because the garden has just two people in it who multiply and fill the earth and the city has the whole earth in it because God's end game is not just two people. God's end game is everybody that ever lives. That's why the city ends with its gates open wide and everybody's welcome. Come on in, come on in, come on in. It's not just a two-man garden. It's an every man's city now there's a long and winding road that gets from genesis to revelation in fact that road doesn't happen quickly and it doesn't happen smoothly in fact as you leave the garden story in the book of genesis the city gets introduced in a very negative connotation the bible tells us that cain built the first city cain was the first city builder what else was cain the first of the first murderer. The Bible's trying to give you a very, very um, subtle, maybe not so subtle, hint as to why the city often feels full of vice and murder. Its father is Cain, and so the city goes down a rough road in the Bible. From Cain building a city, we get the Tower of Babel, the first city that tries to reach its way to heaven, and God scatters the tongue. And from the Tower of Babel, we get Sodom and Gomorrah, a place that doesn't know how to treat the stranger and the foreigner, where perversion runs amok and there's judgment that falls on these cities. And by the time the Old Testament blossoms into the major prophets, the Isaiahs, the Ezekiels, the Jeremiahs, the city has become Babylon. Babylon means confusion. And the city is the place of the worst whoredoms and sin and violence and filth. And you go, wow, You would not imagine if you're in Isaiah that we're ever going to make this leap to Revelation where there's a city that comes down from God out of heaven. Surely what God wants to do is go back to where it was a garden, not go to where it was a city. But I love the narrative flow of the Bible. God gives up on nothing and He gives up on no one. And so God knows that there's a melting pot of people in the city. And Jesus comes along and starts weeping over the city and calls His disciples a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. And by revelation, there's a new city full of a recreated people that God redeems and calls His bride. And so that, to me, is a journey. The Bible takes you on that journey. It's this winding path of Scripture with all these little tributaries and all these little roads going off to the side, but this winding journey of Scripture... And it's a little bit like the journey that we are on as well. I use the word journey a lot in my walk anymore. And I use the word wrestle a lot in my walk anymore. And there's a reason for that. Because I feel like my Christian walk is a journey, not just a destination. I am not saved to go home. I'm not saved to avoid an eternal damnation or to receive an eternal reward of a mansion. I am saved because I am alive and on a journey, and I want his life on this journey. I don't merely want his life when my journey is over. I want his life on my journey. I want his life in my journey. I want his life in my home and my relationships and my marriage, and I want it with my next door neighbor, and I don't want it to be a Sunday journey I want it to be a seven days journey. I don't want a religion. I don't want a faith I turn to when times are tough. I want a faith I know when times are good and when times are bad. I don't want a God who is good when things are good. I want a God who I know is good even when things are bad. That's my journey. And I know that on journeys, I have to wrestle with thoughts, thoughts that propel me to the next part on the journey, because and we were talking about this a little bit before we started, I am not impressed in my journey anymore with this is the way it is. But I am very intrigued with this is the way it could be. This is the way it is means I have nothing to wrestle with. This is the way it could be means I get to go to the mat with some things and see what it does to my soul and what it does to my spirit man. And I know I have a patient and loving father who isn't upset with my wrestlings and isn't bothered. In fact, wants me to wrestle a little bit, wants me to drop an elbow once in a while on an old mindset or the way I used to think or the way that is pulling me astray from the journey. And so on that journey, what I'm realizing is, is I'm going from my own fertile beginnings to a city And in that city is all kinds of information and all kinds of life experiences and all kinds of ideas, and it incorporates all kinds of people. And you're in that city in my own journey, and you used to not be in that city because my city was more like a garden. But as I go along and as you go along, the garden starts to become more of a city. There are more people in your life that matter. There are more situations in your life that mean something, and it should be that way. The opposite of that is the refusal to get out of the garden, and the refusal to grow in the city. It's to say I want a faith that only affects me. I don't wanna be I don't wanna deal with the world. I don't wanna deal with their issues. I don't wanna deal with their problems. This has caused some Christians to run from the church because I don't wanna be a part of a group. I don't wanna be a part of an accountability, I don't wanna see other people or deal with their problems or I'm tired of being hurt. I'm tired of hypocrites. I'm tired of it. We got a lot of reasons why we prefer our gardens over our cities, but our cities are a representation. They're an allegory for all of that stuff. But, The beautiful thing is is no matter how bad it is, no matter how rough it is, no matter how full of vice it is and struggles it is, in the end, he redeems it because that's the journey. In the end, Christ opens the gates and says, the city's mine and everything in you is mine. And I am working on all of it. And you and I hold hands together. This is what I think the Holy Spirit says to us. You hold my nail-scarred hands and we'll go to work on this stuff and we'll wrestle this stuff. And that's part of that journey. And there are no structures that hold me in one spot on that journey. Same with you. There's no permanence. So you're not landing on a spot, staking your claim there and refusing to move. And you know why? Because you're not done. When you do that, you've declared that you're done. I stake my claim, this is my property. I move no farther. That means your journey is finished. Well, my journey, your journey is not finished. And therefore, there's no structures in our wilderness. There is no place of permanence that we camp out in. I want to take you to Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, and Hebrews 13 for three little passages. And we're going to read them in consecutive order. I want to show you in Hebrews 11, 12, and 13. I'll start in Hebrews 11:8. I want to show you this idea of transience and journey. We're going to start with Abraham. I want to show you the natural journey of Abraham and the lack of a city. I want to show you that the scriptures tell us we have a city. And then I want to show you what appears to be a very immediate contradiction in the scriptures. And uh, I want to assure you that we're not going to stop tonight with just figuring maybe it's a contradiction. We're going to go a little farther than that. All right. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I, I, I want to just stop here for one little second, and I want to comment on this, that I think this is one of the great examples of faith in the narrative of the entire Bible. You want to know what faith looks like? It sometimes is going out and not knowing where you're going. And this so runs opposite to our fundamental belief that if you take a step, you should have vetted it for six or eight weeks before you take it. (laughs) Like if you take a step, you should have worked a long time to make sure the foot falls properly. And anything less than that is some sort of fiscal, financial, spiritual, emotional irresponsibility. And I love that God doesn't fight you on that. God doesn't have a scripture where he goes, you fool. No, but instead, when God wants to show you his way, he goes, okay, do it your way. But faith sometimes says, let's go where we don't know where we're going. And and for every one of us who um, who have vetted six or eight weeks ahead, or six or eight years ahead, there's going to be moments on our journey when a ghost walks out of the darkness. The ghost that is Jesus and says, step out of the boat, come walk with me on the water. And the challenge is going to be yours to say no, or to swing that spiritual leg over the side of the boat and take a step of faith and walk out to meet Jesus. And that's, and I'm praying that for you. If you haven't had that, I pray that for you because there is where you will finally test your spiritual metal. Like faith is an easy, faith is an, Faith is an easy switch to click in our minds when all we're having to do is make a verbal confession, get dunked in a baptistry, claim Jesus, and call ourselves Christians. Faith meets challenge when it's Jesus that goes, step out of the boat, swing your leg, come see me. And then we find out whether or not our faith is in action or our faith is in Sunday school verses. And I hope it on all of you. And I'm not wishing anything bad. That's the greatest gift you can get is for the Holy Spirit to say, come here. Because that's when you'll know, too, that this journey doesn't allow you to build castles on the road. That some of this is tent dwelling journeys that you're not allowed to just build in a residence. And let me show you why I mean that. Verse 9, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as if he were in a foreign country. Look at that. He knows it's going to be his, but he doesn't live there as if it's his yet because he's dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And so Abraham is waiting on a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. I already told you there's two. There's bookends in the Bible that in the beginning we start in a garden and in the end we end up in a city that comes down from God out of heaven. Who made that city? God. What city is Abraham waiting on? That city, the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham's waiting on it way back in the book of Genesis. He's waiting on the city that will show up in the book of Revelation. And so how does he live in the meantime? Intense. And why? Because he's waiting on the city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And all of this speaks to us of the fact that we await whatever it is that God's taking us to, bringing us to, building us to, and that on the way to what that is... We do not find permanent residence in any single thought process, in any single idea, in any single frame of mind, in any single spot, but we are willing and ready to wrestle out the next move. Where would you have me go next? What would you have me do now, Father, because I'm wrestling out or walking out this next step? Keep that thought in mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment and go to Hebrews 12 and verse 22. In Hebrews 12, verse 22, You have come to Mount Zion, to the city city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Look at the top of that again. You've come to Mount Zion, to a city of the living God. You have come to the city. This is not future tense. This is not way back in Abraham's day. This is our day. The contrast here is you're not at Mount Sinai, which is black and dark and people are scared of it. That's a Moses statement. Instead, you are at Zion. Zion is the heavenly city. You belong there now. So in a very spiritual way, we have our city. I wanna make sure we we get to that. Now I wanna show you what appears to be a very quick contradiction in terms. And then we're going to try to weave these three together, all right? Look at Hebrews 13. That's the next chapter. We are literally moving left to right. 11, 12, 13. Look at Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14. We have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Okay. Now Hebrews 13:14 sounds a bit contradictory to me to Hebrews 12:22. What Hebrews 12:22 said, you've come to the city But Hebrews 13 says you don't have a continuing city. Which one is it? Have I come to the city? Do I not have a continuing city? Okay, well let's put it with Abraham's text from Hebrews 11 that said he lived in tents because he kept waiting on the city that was to come. And so in a nutshell, we're going to break these three down in just a second, but in a nutshell, because I don't want to let that contradiction hang there all night long. I want to make sure we solve that without forgetting, because I tend to do that sometimes, get to the end and go, didn't really clean up the contradictions. Let's fix that. Is that I very much believe that Hebrews chapter 11 is telling us Abraham's story, but that it's meant to be an allegory for all of us who walk out faith, that we are to look forward to where God is taking us, but that we are not to lay our stakes down too deep on the road to that, lest we get sidetracked And never grow into the city we're supposed to be. And also in Hebrews 12, in a spiritual sense, we have come into the full presence of what that city offers us because we're in Christ. And in Christ... He's already done for us all things. He's not doing for us things. He's not waiting on us so he can do things. Christ has already done it. He's died. He's resurrected. He's ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't do all that over again. He doesn't do all of that every time you experience him. When someone comes to Christ, he doesn't re-die, re-resurrect, re-ascend, finished work. And so in Christ, we've come to the city we're looking for in Christ. We've come to the city we're looking for. So what about the contradiction? We haven't yet finished the journey. We don't have a continuing city in the way that the earth thinks of cities. We don't have a singular continuous thing that is anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And whatever in our life that we have, we need to treat it like a tent rather than a permanent dwelling because tents are meant to be pulled up and moved and cities don't go anywhere. And the reason I don't yet have my fullness of my city is because here it is. I haven't yet fully arrived at anything. I haven't fully figured anything out. I haven't fully Answered the questions. This takes me back to the statement we made 10 minutes ago. I'm not so excited about this is the way it is statements, but I'm pretty excited about this is the way it could be statements. And the reason I'm not excited about this is the way it is statements, because this is the way it is statements are absolutes. That means I don't have anything to wrestle with. And that's kind of how we like to treat things. Hey, here's the truth, believe it or not. That's most of our gospel message, by the way. That's how we preach the gospel to sinners. Here's the truth, believe it or not. Wow, man, that was, that was pretty brief. I, mean, I can list it off for you. Here's six scriptures. Here's the truth, believe it or not. Boom, boom, boom. And the truth is, is that we could come up with six or eight other scriptures that would say a variant on the six or eight scriptures we came up with. And that's why we end up with 43,000 denominations that's fact. I mean, that's, there's, we're not just coming up with denominations because, you know, we want a church on the other side of the street. We're coming up with them because this is how it is. Not this is how it could be. This is how it is. And all you others that don't agree with how it is, well, you're wrong, but we've got it right over here and we're going to rally around what is right, which is a tough place to live in a world of people who really want to wrestle out how it could be, especially considering we don't have a continuing city. We're tent dwellers. We keep moving from spot to spot. And what does that mean? If not, you're on a journey, you're not there yet, quit staking your claim on the latest piece of information. Instead, realize this is an ongoing revelation of the love of God. You haven't figured it all out. You haven't arrived at the final answer. What you think you know today, God tweaks a little bit tomorrow. Why? Because you rounded another corner on the road. And when you round another corner on the road, you get a whole new perspective of what lies down the other side. And that causes us to have to wrestle with what's around the corner. But if we don't move past where we are today, we don't have an opportunity to go into that place to understand what it is that God might have for us. Let's start with that first one that Abraham Dwelt in a tent. If you need the text again, it's, it's Hebrews 11 8, 9, and 10. I want to talk about it for just a second. Abraham dwelt in tents because he awaited his own inheritance. Abraham knew he was in constant transition. Interestingly enough, Abraham's in the promised land, but he knows it's not the right time yet. Um, one of the most underappreciated things about faith is timing. People don't talk enough about this when they talk about faith. They think that faith is this blanket thing that you either have or you don't. If you have it, boom. If you don't have it, get it. That's what people say. Right? But the truth of the matter is is that faith is not some universal principle that ignores the timing of the Holy Spirit. Faith is allowing the Holy Spirit to move into our timeline to show us what we should do in the moment. What is stupid today might be faith tomorrow. What is faith today might be stupid tomorrow. That's why we learn to listen to the Holy Spirit who informs us in the moment. Now how do I know this? Because the text tells me that Abraham was in the Promised Land but he didn't claim it. Now does he not have enough faith to claim it? What's what's Abraham's problem? I thought he was supposed to be God's man of faith. Why doesn't he claim the promised land? Because he knows it's not time to claim the promised land. That's why he doesn't build a house. It's not mine yet. I don't have a faith problem. And this is, this, this I think is universal. I don't think you have, I don't think we have a faith problem. I think we have an obedience problem. And by obedience, every one of us always thinks about sin. That's all Christians think when you talk obedience. Are you being obedient to the Lord? And they go, well, obedience is the opposite of sinning. Stop that obedience doesn't always have anything to do with sin. In fact, it rarely has anything to do with sin. Obedience has to do with walking in faith and listening to the Spirit as we walk that faith out. Abraham's living, he's in the promised land, but he won't claim it as the promised land, not because he doesn't have the faith for the promised land, but because he knows it's not the timing of the Holy Spirit to give him what it is he's standing on. And so instead of staking his claim in something that's not yet Supposed to be his but someday will be he just keeps living in tents with the inheritors of the promised land living in a tent next to him his sons and his family and So part of our journey is timing listening to the Holy Spirit in the moment We have a a problem a lot of times with people changing their mind It's like we think people are weak if they change their mind well you used to feel this way why don't you feel this way anymore okay here's a possibility maybe the information changed we're that way with sports a lot we're that way with the stock market we're that way with economies we're that way with governments we're that way with laws we'll make some statement about what we've got figured out let me use a sports analogy okay we're in the south we all understand sports analogy so and so's a so and so's a terrible receiver They shouldn't even be on the team. There's your hot take of the day. And then so-and-so goes out and puts on 35 pounds of muscle and increases his 40 speed and next year shows up to camp and he's the best player there. And when you come out and go, you know who's gonna be the best receiver on the team? So-and-so. And And then everybody piles on and goes, ah, you said he was terrible. He wasn't any good. Uh, You changed your mind. I go, no, yeah, you know why I changed my mind? It's called 35 pounds of muscle and a lot of sprint training. Okay, I changed my mind because the information changed. I changed my mind because the setting changed. Why don't we do this in the Spirit? Why is it so off-limits for us to walk into a greater revelation of God's love and then say, I don't see it the way I used to see it? Well, are you double-minded? Are you wishy-washy? Are you changing your mind? Listen, it's about obeying the Spirit where He has me not refusing to move off of wherever it is that He had me. Did you hear how I did that? It's obeying the Spirit where He has me, not the refusal to move off of where He had me. And listen, if we we think in every moment we've got it all figured out, then there would be no more room for God to ever reveal anything to us. Imagine how God feels about where you are. God, who knows all things, sees you jumping up and down by all this revelation you have, and you're 30 miles from the end game, 40 years from it all being over with, and you're you're building castles back here on all this revelation you have. And the Lord goes, Man, you don't have any idea how much more I want to show you, but you've got to keep moving forward. You can't keep living in the singular spot. Tent this thing up and let's move on. And so for Abraham, it's all about timing. Think about this in the, in the, in the wilderness, Israel had no, no temple. She only had a tabernacle and there were different moments as Israel journeyed through the wilderness where God did different miracles. And every now and then we get glimpses of how hard it is to move on past certain revelations. For instance, Israel's moving through the wilderness and they're thirsty. And so God tells Moses, take your rod and strike that rock and water will come gushing out of the rock and tell Israel to drink up. And he does. And it's a spectacular miracle. And water comes rushing out of the rock and Israel takes their cups and drinks to the fill. Some months later, they're still journeying. Maybe some years later, they're still journeying through the wilderness and they whine again. This time they're thirsty again. They're dehydrating. And they come to Moses and they say, we need water. And God speaks to Moses and says, go speak to that rock and water will come out of it. And Moses is so mad at the people because they're always complaining. Get tired of being around people that complain. He's so mad that they're always complaining. He takes his rod and he smites the rock again and nothing happens. The Bible says he smites it again in the Hebrew. And then that water comes flying out of the rock And God calls Moses off to the side and says, that little show of anger that you had back there, that little show of disobedience is going to cost you your place in the promised land. Now, what was Moses' problem? Moses had built a structure around smiting rocks to get water. He built his own church around it. We are the church that smites rocks to get water. God did it once, God do it all the time because God's the same yesterday, today and forever. We love to to quote scriptures out of context, by the way. I can imagine Moses might have pulled that too, because why not? He's human, like us. God did it once; He'll do it again. Bless God. Oh, He did it again, but it's not what God told him to do. God told him to speak to the rock. Now you might go. That's a subtle difference. Who cares? It's a different revelation for a different day. Once you've smitten the shepherd, once at Calvary, you don't have to kill him again. All you got to do, speak it. He sent a bad message to Israel that you got to smack it twice. You want to? You want to beat your sin? Beat it once at the cross. Beat it twice at the cross. God's God's preaching a message way over Moses' head, but Moses has refused to step out of the revelation he was in yesterday into the revelation he's in today, and it costs him a piece of his future because doctrinally he built a temple around rock-smacking theology. And when you build a temple around rock-smacking theology, you don't have the patience for rock-speaking theology. Rock-speaking theology is too liberal and progressive. I'm conservative rock-smiter. This rock speaking's not serious enough for me. See how easy that is? You go, well, that's a wild step to make. Tell that to Moses, who made it and missed the promised land. Something as simple as just merely in the moment not obeying the spirit who said, we're not not hitting rocks today. We're speaking to him. I don't know what church you think you've started out here in the wilderness. There are no structures out here in the wilderness, Moses. Not only do we not build a temple out here, you don't get to build ideas out here that you won't let go of because we're transient people. We're moving left to right. We are not locked in in a spot. We don't just die on that hill. We listen as the Holy Spirit grows us, progresses us, and you go, man, that's tough to do. That's why I use the word wrestling. Because we do have to wrestle with this sometimes. And it's bigger than us. And we have to go to the mat with it, with the father and say, I don't understand this. This isn't what I thought this was a year ago. And he goes, That's okay. We're not where we were a year ago. Right? This isn't what I used to would have said. And he goes, That's great. We're not where you used to be. How do you think I felt when you were there, son? I've always wanted to be up here, but I'm patient. So I've been running with you way back here. I mean, I've had some ideas and I've had a lot of scriptures behind them. And I've got up and said, thus saith the Lord. And God anointed it because we're holding hands on a journey. Now God spiritually is out here at Revelation in a brand new city with the gates wide open and bringing everybody in. And I haven't been in that city. But I'm on that journey towards that city. I'm on that journey towards that move. So what happens sometimes is like Moses, we build, we build structures around doctrines. We build structures around movements. We build structures around ministries. When this happens, what happens sometimes is when you are ready then to receive revelation to go to the next spot, people that don't want to leave that spot won't go with you. And that's painful. So when you're on this journey and you go, the Lord's speaking to me, it's time to pull my tent up. I got another, he's telling me something else. And you go, they'll say, you've left the truth. You've left the truth. The truth's over here. And you go, guys, we're on the road, man. We're not building churches around doctrines. We're just building this around Jesus. Not building this around ideas. Not building this around structures. This is what's happened in the grace message. I love the accent of grace in the church. I personally don't think you can over-preach grace. Um, To me, over-preaching grace is like over-preaching Jesus, (laughs) you know? But I do believe that we've made the grace message into the next thing. And I think what we've done with a lot of things is as the Holy Spirit moves among His church, like blows over His church like Pentecostal wind, I think we gravitate to that wind and then we build structures around it. And we're a little bit like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see Jesus and Moses and Elijah and we go, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three houses and let's keep you and Moses and Elijah right here. And God goes, get out of here, Moses and Elijah. Just listen to Jesus. We don't build houses around Jesus. Jesus got work to do. And so we're a little bit like that. So I used to make fun of Peter. Like what a, what a stupid idea Peter has to build these three little houses. But the the truth is, is it's an allegory for what we do. With revelation is that we we tried to build little houses around it, but I think one of the things that's happened with the message of grace is the same thing that happened with the Pentecostal renewal in the United States in the early twentieth century. I think it's the same thing that happened with uh, the massive gifts of healings that swept the country in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties um, as a result of the Pentecostal experience. I think it's a result of the Great Word of Faith doctrine. That swept the church in the 70s and the 80s. It transformed the way people thought about the Holy Spirit. transformed the way people thought about healing. transformed the way people thought about faith. It was all great. But you can go back into some of those quarters and they're still standing there. That's all they teach, preach, talk about, write about. They haven't moved into something else because they built a temple in the wilderness what's supposed to be a transient journey into the full revelation of God, we're doing it, I've seen people do it with the message of grace. And so anything that doesn't say grace, 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 Jesus, yeah, finish work, finish work, finish work, they don't have anything to do with because they believe they've arrived at some ultimate doctrine. And I think what's happened is we've built, we've, we've grabbed a mirage of a city and built a temple around it instead of picking up our tent stakes and moving into the revelation as God continues to reveal Jesus to us. Hear what I said. He continues to reveal Jesus to us. I didn't say he gives us better doctrine, different truth. No, Jesus isn't just standing in one theological doctrinal box. And so as he is revealing himself across time to us on our journey, we pull the tent stakes up and go wherever he is, that's where I want to be. I want to follow what Jesus is saying. I want to follow Christ. That makes me a follower of Jesus, not a follower of doctrine, not a follower of the apostle Paul, not a follower of the Bible. I know that gets risky when you say that because people think, well, if you're not gonna follow the Bible, what are you gonna follow? Well, I got something for you. It's called Jesus. So I'm following Jesus. I do see him in the Bible, but I don't stop seeing him when I close my Bible. Right? Therefore, I don't just follow what I see there, I follow the Jesus I see there, and that Jesus is alive and real within me, and speaking and speaks in the parameters of covenant, and looks like His Father, and all of those all of those powerful illustrations. We grow, we don't stay. Um, I don't want to take you there, but in Hebrews 12 the Bible tells us that Abraham pitched a tent with his son and he built an altar, and then he left it, because altars were permanent structures in the middle of the wilderness. Um, But they were permanent structures around what God had shown you there. And you built them and you left them and you moved on to another spot. And so I think altars can be monuments of what we've had, but we don't camp out there. And so Abraham has that happening. Now, let me take you real quick back to Hebrews 12. I'm going to walk you, we we, we dealt with Abraham's journey. Let me deal with this mountain that you're on and then we're going to deal with this final one in Hebrews 13 and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, let me reread it. You have come to Mount Zion. I want to show you what's here. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, verse 23, Hebrews 12, 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. All kinds of good stuff in your city. That's where you are, by the way, right there. Notice what's not there. A bunch of doctrine. There's no scripture there. There's no doctrine there. God's not talking to you there about which water baptism method's correct. What praise and worship formula works in the church. How you're supposed to build this thing. Does not give you tips for evangelism. Show you how to win the lost at any cost. None of that stuff. What's there? Spiritual realities. God the judge. Jesus his son, the mediator. Host of heaven, the angel army, church of the firstborn, bought in the blood of Jesus, living in the new covenant. That's our city. You can bank on that one. That's where you can build your house. You can build it on that city. All other ground is sinking sand. Okay, That's what Jesus said when he said, build it on the rock, storm comes, boom, you're fine. Everything else, shifting. Why why does Jesus compare rock to sand? Nobody builds a house on sand. That'd be stupid, right? course it would. That's why I use the illustration. Because it'd be dumb to build on something that shifts. I mean, sand moves every time the tide comes in. <laughs> your house is gone like the next time the moon comes out. I mean, it doesn't even last very long. It's like, here comes the tide, boom, there goes your house. Jesus goes, yes, that would be dumb, wouldn't it? He goes, why would you build a house that's just built right on the sand? The whole thing crumbles out from under you. Why would you ever build on anything that shifts? Why would you ever build on anything that moves? You could build it on something immovable. That's our only way. So our city is not doctrines. Our city is Jesus. Let me show you how Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9. I, 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 this is complimentary, but I, I really want to take you there. I hope, I hope you can... I hope we can make this connection smoothly. I think we can. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field workers. Then Paul shifts the illustration right in the middle of it. You're God's field. Scratch that. You are God's building. I like that. He doesn't say scratch that. He doesn't have to. That's what we do when we're, up spe- when we're speaking extemporaneously. And Paul doesn't write, by the way, Paul doesn't write his own letters. He talks his letters. And when you're talking your letter, you say something like, you know what? We're God's field. No, you know what? We're God's building. And his writer just goes, you are God's field, you are God's building. Those are not the same thing. You're not field and building. So Paul builds the illustration better. He's going, you're God's field. No, forget it. You're God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation, another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. There it is. So if you're going to build a city, don't build it on doctrines, ideas, thoughts, experiences, feelings, opinions. Build it on Jesus. So Paul says, if you're going to lay down roots, man, lay it down on one thing, Jesus. Okay, this is why I said I hope we can make this smooth transition. In Hebrews 12, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of God. Who's on that mountain? The Father and the Son and the church. Jesus is on that mountain. Notice that the foundation you build on, the city you live in, is Jesus. The only thing we don't leave behind in the Christian journey. Jesus Christ. That's it. Everything else, get ready, man. You're tent dwellers. What you're willing to die for today, don't build a house on it. Just trust, just don't build a house on it. It's okay to build a campfire there. It's okay to pitch your tent, live there for a couple weeks. Don't build a house on it. It's a bad foundation. You got more information coming tomorrow. You know what's not a bad foundation? Jesus Christ. Christ, Him crucified. Him resurrected, Him ascended, Him descended through the Holy Spirit, Him seated at the right hand of the Father, Christ the healer, Christ the provider, Christ the new covenant, Christ is our redemption, Christ is our wisdom, Christ is our... I'm in the scriptures. I'm just pulling them from different spots in the New Testament and when you put them all together in one big old pot, what do you get? Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the stone that the builders rejected. He's what people don't want to build on, but if you'll build on Him, nothing else will matter. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the only thing worth living and dying for. Get off all the other stuff, man. Just Jesus. I hope I get the rep of being a Jesus guy. I hope when people talk about Paul White, they go, you know what, man, he don't know much about this. I've, I saw him in a Q&A. He's really dumb about this. He's not good at answering these kind of questions. You know what that dude is? He's just a Jesus guy. Oh, man, that would be so exciting to me. That would be the best of the best to go, you know, all he can do is talk about Jesus. Every time I go hear that guy, he talks about Jesus. If you ask him a question, he ends up trying to talk about Jesus. I don't really think he's that smart. I don't really think he understands this or that or the other. I don't really think he's got his mind around. He's framed it the a quite proper way. Probably so. Probably so. All of those things are probably true. I don't have my mind around many things. But may we be known for Jesus. And, and may we be known for pointing people to Jesus and just to walk out of that room, wherever that is, or click off of that video or be done with that podcast and go, I don't know about that guy, but man, if I don't Spend the rest of the day thinking about Jesus when I listen to that. I don't know about that guy, but there's something about his Jesus. Mm. His Jesus is radical. His Jesus is loving. His Jesus is big. His Jesus is open-armed. I can't imagine the Jesus that guy preaching kicking me out. I can't imagine the Jesus that guy preaches turning me away. I can't imagine the Jesus that guy preaches saying no to me feels like that Jesus would give me a shot. It feels like that Jesus would give me some love. feels like that Jesus would forgive me. Amen. Let's be those people. Let's be those people. You got the chance. Unless you build temples around ideas and you refuse to walk with Jesus down the road. If you want to build a structure in the wilderness, you can't build it on Jesus because Jesus is moving. He's walking towards the end of the book, heading for a city that has foundations only in God. The city that comes down from God out of heaven. He's marrying a bride that looks like that city. And what are in cities? Vile, wicked strangers. Melting pots of the trashiest in the world. Welcome home. Welcome home to the place that Jesus redeems the city. (laughs) And goes, I chose you. I chose you. I chose you and your foolishness and your failures and your sin. And I pull you into this city with all the other failures. And I pull you straight from my heart. And I hold you out here and I hug you as my own. And I love you. And that's, that's Jesus. Let me land here. I don't know if it's necessary. I really don't. And I only say that because I feel like we've we've done the work. But for those that want to do one more step, I at least want you to know where to step. Hebrews 13, let's give the context of our so-called contradictory verse, shall we? Remember Hebrews 13, 14, for we have no continuing city but we seek one to come. Remember that? We don't have a continuing city. We're still looking for one. I think the writer of Hebrews is using this as an allegory. That's obvious because you're not actually looking to inherit a real city on the planet. So you know it's got to be something. But I think it has to do with we have no permanent doctrine that's anything but Jesus. Let me show you why I think that. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. By the way, if you, if you did not know where that verse was in the Bible, this is it. People quote that verse all the time. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible, by the way, doesn't say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Does that mean God's not the same yesterday, today, and forever? No, it just means that we don't perceive God the same yesterday, today, and forever. We never have. You think you have? Read the Old Testament. Good luck. They didn't perceive God the way you see Jesus. Jesus, who is showing you the Father, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm not saying God wasn't the same. I'm saying we didn't always see God the same way. But there's only one way to see Jesus if you pay attention. And that's where the author's about to take you. So, verse 9 Don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it's good that your heart be established with grace. Not with foods that don't profit those that have been occupied with them. We have an altar. What's an altar? An altar is that little place of permanence in the middle of your transient journey. You want to know what our altar looks like? He goes, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle don't have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, they're burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. How's he going to save the city? He goes outside of it to suffer outside where all of us outsiders live so that he can suffer outside of that. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp. Bear his reproach because we have no continuing city. We keep looking for that which is to come. Where do we go in a world where everybody's got it figured out? We go to the only thing we got figured out. We go outside of everybody's city. Outside of your permanent ideas. Outside of where you've pitched your tent. Outside of where you're dying on that hill. And we go, you can have it. I'm going to go outside to the only thing I know that matters. I'm going to go out to Jesus and I'm going to live there. And I don't have a continuing city anywhere that Jesus isn't the foundation. Amen. But wherever Jesus is the foundation, I'll die right on that hill. I'll die right on that hill. Nothing else is worth me dying over. I'm not going to fight with you about stuff. This is why I'm done fighting with people about stuff. i won't to fight with you. You think I'm going to die on that hill being right and wrong? I don't know which one of us is right. You know the only thing I'm willing to lay my life down for, the foundation stone is Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I die for standing for Jesus. All the other stuff, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, I don't know. What I thought I was right about yesterday, I'm not so sure about today. Stuff I'm pretty darn sure about today, I've got an idea that there's something around the corner tomorrow. I've decided that as far as doctrines and ideas and theories and philosophies and thought processes are concerned, I'm better off living in tents. But when it comes to staking my claim on eternal life, I've laid my foundation stones down on a man named Jesus. Amen. Outside the camp. Amen. What happens outside the camp? That's where you go to die. Yes. I'm gonna meet him outside the camp or I'm gonna lay everything else down, go, you and me, Jesus. Take whatever about me you don't like, just put it right up there on the cross with you. <laughs> Let me die with you so I can live in your life. I want that now. I don't just want that when I go home. I want that today. Don't you? Father, I thank you tonight for this word. Amen. I preached to myself tonight. <laughs> I, felt, I felt as strongly convicted speaking to myself as I could have ever felt, I think, having someone else preach. <laughs> Just, there's so many things I've been so cocksure about. And now I know I, there was some stuff that I was trying to build a temple around and you were around the other corner, crucified outside the gate. I still don't think I got anything figured out, but thank you for this revelation that what really matters is Jesus Christ. And teach us that if we're going to build anything, we're going to have to build it around that. Father, I want to leave behind things that were valuable in their moment. They mattered, but they were not permanent. I'm ready to leave them. Whatever that means. Teach me as I go. Teach me how to wrestle. Faith meets obedience in the moment. No structures in the wilderness. In Jesus' name, amen.